0: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? We're recording this episode in the time slot we'd reserved for our interview with Oprah about the problems with the DeHaunt method of counting votes. Sadly, our request to her team was declined. I'm Naomi Smith, and joining me this week are two regulars. Minnie Rahman is the Campaign and Comms Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hi, Naomi. Now many obviously the world and their dog has been completely distracted by the Harry and Meghan revelations about racist royals but while we weren't paying attention because of because of that story another truly horrific story broke yesterday about the scandal at Napier Barracks tell us what happened there and what what what's Pretty Patel got to answer for this time
1: Yeah Napier Barracks is really up there with one of the most inhumane creations that any Home Secretary has come up with from my perspective. So essentially Priti Patel created this new hybrid of asylum accommodation and detention by placing loads of asylum seekers in old military barracks for housing. You know, that kind of housing is totally unsuitable for the majority of people, let alone people claiming asylum and in the middle of a pandemic. And this week, the independent chief inspector of borders and the Prisons inspector carried out their own investigation into the conditions of the barracks and absolutely dragged it. I've honestly never seen such a scathing report from an independent inspector, and it kind of represents everything that is wrong with the Home Office. They found that the Home Office did not consult local partners who needed to kind of sign off on this thing, um, which Priti Patel actually lied about in Parliament earlier in the year and said she had done. They ignored warnings from organisations supporting asylum seekers. They ignored warnings from Public Health England. And they've kind of forged ahead with a total disregard from the people living there who are reporting extraordinarily high levels of depression and and suicidal feelings. I think a third of them reported suicidal feelings. So it really is an absolute scandal.
0: And and she just needs to resign. Ministers lying uh, in Parliament and getting away with it. What will they think of next? Um, but many look whether we've been lovers or haters of the royal saga we can't really deny that it has you know put the issue of racism onto the headlines and into our national conversation and with it some uh, absolutely astonishing scenes of white where you know you've had white tv pundits telling black guests and colleagues what is and isn't racist and um uh, I'm sure listeners have all caught up with it now, but obviously Piers Morgan's storming off the set of GMB uh, before then quitting the show altogether. Do you think this is going to be what in America they they would tend to call like a teachable moment on entrenched racism? Uh, is, is this a tipping point? Are things going to change now?
1: You know, I would like to say that it's going to be a teachable moment, but I honestly am quite worried that it's going to play into this whole culture war that the right are pursuing quite heavily. And, you know, this isn't a new conversation. We've had lots of conversations about race in the last year that, you know, don't seem to have progressed very much apart from having more kind of toxic conversations about it. And, you know, this was a conversation about racism. It's now a conversation about Piers Morgan and the kind of support that he often draws is from people who are so-called you know anti-woke, whatever you want to call it. So I'm not sure that it's going to lead to any change behaviour, particularly from the media. You know, we've already had the Leveson inquiry into the behaviour of the media. We're still waiting for part two, and it just hasn't had the desired outcome that it needed and there's still relatively few ways to hold the media to account but what I do appreciate is how this kind of conversation does give space for black women to talk about their experiences what I my wishes and what I hope is that at least this conversation that's happening now might help any debates start from the point of believing people's experiences and and not immediately trying to scream them down.
0: Also with us is Ian Dunt, editor-at-large of politics.co.uk, and as regular listeners will know, a huge fan of the Royals, especially Prince Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Ian. Know.
2: You know, I knew the second I saw that story come up, I was just like, I know, the guys on the podcast, this is this is how it's <laughs> going to play out for me. I'm going to be put in this position of, Ian, how can you justify Prince Charles? I like, think oh, you good. put yourself
0: That's- in that position. <laughs> Um, look, the Mirror has called this the worst royal crisis in 85 years because, you know, Prince Andrew's interview with Emily Maitlis was just, you know, a collective fever dream we all had simultaneously. The firm, um, as, it, as it's now known, has already weathered the Duke of York's non-sweaty visit to Woking Pizza Express and the post-opera <laughs> polls look to be in their favour. Albeit with a skew between the the younger and the older generations, and and Labour and Conservative leaning voters, is there any amount of controversy that could bring down the monarchy?
2: Yeah, I mean, there there, there definitely is. You know, you could you only have to go back to sort of you know the death of Princess Diana to see that the polls were moving in a in a situation that was almost unprecedented at that point. And I don't think it's Uh, inconceivable that something like that could happen now but i think you know Minnie's assessment of it as a as a culture war moment makes it qualitatively different i mean the really dangerous point is when you start getting sucked into these opposing camps and that makes it quite dangerous i think it makes it quite dangerous for people like me where whether the the advantage of the royal family is the fact that it is depoliticized that it is not a political space and actually in this context it becomes part of something that's associated with the right of the identity culture war and over time that can do real damage. I mean, I would, I would say, look, if, if you are someone who wants to get rid of the royal family, I mean, A, change your opinion, and B, that's not a desirable thing. But if I was on that side, I think what I wouldn't do is, is the thing that Republicans often do, of at each moment when, when something comes up, they jump straight to the, to the full-on exercise of like, right, well, we can get rid of the royal family. Instead, I would be trying to chisel away at the support rather than going for the, for the apocalypse solution. And that would be a a more damaging approach, I think. And and that is probably the the way in which support would ebb away, uh, if it's not framed by republicanism, if it's framed by a chipping away of trust and that kind of apolitical uh, image that they have.
0: But there can be sort of no doubt, I don't think, that this is having a negative impact on Britain's reputation globally, uh, in particular America and the Commonwealth. Do you think that this is going to tarnish brand Britain? (laughs)
2: Jesus Christ is I didn't know it could get any more tarnished um I mean I I, what I've seen from America is more that it's split along their culture war lines as well. Who's that that sort of guy that thinks he's terribly clever, but is obviously a caveman imbecile? Is it be- Ben Shapiro? Is that his oh, name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean he he was coming out with the sort of stuff, of going of clearly framing it as part of the culture war fight in one way or another. That seems to be the way it's breaking down there. Although I did I did this regular slot on Late Night Live on Australia Australian Radio this morning, and I've got to say the Piers Morgan news. They were, it was getting a lot of traction over there. So we shouldn't underestimate how much this is being discussed. But I would imagine in most of those situations, it will break down along fairly similar cultural lines now.
0: Our special guest this week is our favourite Evertonian and lookalike for Stephen Morris from New Order. <laughs> <laughs> in, the in 2015 and became the mayor of Greater Manchester two years later. Back in October, he responded to the government's offer of tier three support for the Northwest live on TV, a reaction that spawned a thousand memes. Bend the knee for King of the North. It's Andy Burnham. <laughs> Hi, Andy.
3: Hi, everybody. hope you're so, bowing down now. At this yeah, we are.
0: Time. <laughs> Deep, courtesy. Deep courtesy. Um, Andy, do mayors have more fun than MPs?
3: Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Nice being compared to Stephen Morris and you were, and that never happened when I was an MP. That's for, that's for a start. But, um, oh, it's so liberating, honestly, to leave Westminster, be your own your own person and uh, not be told how to vote or told what to say. And that's the thing, you see. Westminster makes a fraud out of people. It took me a long time to work that out, but it does, you know, when you're kind of trapped in the whip system of Westminster. It's not surprising, is it, that the, the public kind of have no real sense of what the individuals in there sometimes are all about. So it's been liberating for me, honestly. And uh, I, yeah, I am I feel I'm happier as a mayor than I was as an MP or a minister. And
0: that's why you've just launched your re-election campaign as mayor of Greater Manchester. What, what are you going to do differently uh, if you're successful in term two than you managed to achieve in your first term?
3: Well, I'm going to have quite a big... Big commitments, actually, and I spend as you might have noticed, uh, Ian, um, a lot of my time knocking at uh, London. I don't knock London actually, I love London to be honest. Um, I spent a lot of my life there. It's more the way in which London has had things that we haven't, you know, and that's mm. the thing that obviously frustrates us. So, uh, I'm this is a compliment to London. I'm going to be committing to a London style public transport system for Greater Manchester, um, because that would be a game changer for us to have a situation where you can get off one of our trams and get on a bus and not, not pay twice, effectively, which is what we do at the moment. You know, a daily cap and all of that kind of stuff uh, would be a Sniffing massive... Sniffing each other's
0: armpits on the commute, rammed in <laughs> like sardines.
3: Well, this we is it. We'll actually, we'll actually talk to people on the commute, Ian, and like yeah, you <laughs> lot, we're just staring, staring each other out on the tubes there. But I can't help but, but people you. have a laugh on the trams, even if they are crowded.
2: I just sort of feel that, as like a monarchy supporting Londoner, I'm going to have a really fucking difficult podcast today. That's the impression that I'm getting so far. <laughs>
0: right you don't pay the big bucks, Ian. We're going to be talking about the regions um, and how Westminster treats them in detail later. But we've seen that the majority of Sunak's one billion pound deals are going to conservative constituency towns. It, to us, Andy, this just smells like very crude pork barrel politicking. If you agree, how does Labour land that blow on them?
3: Mm, Doesn't look much better to me. I mean, I've been looking into this over the last week. So let me give you a real clear example. Leveling up fund. Canterbury is a category one, priority one area for the leveling up fund. Salford, level uh, priority two. Now, can anybody on this podcast, listening to this podcast, justify? Uh, that i mean clearly it's impossible to uh, to yeah. justify uh, justify that so it's going wrong i mean i'm to be honest with you levelling up is the most potent political theme that any party has put forward since i've been around in politics because it's the thing that really needs doing you know the tories are really onto something but the danger is if they make it like this divisive where they sort of handpick winners and losers and skew it politically, it's going to go pretty disastrously wrong for them. So, I mean, I think Labour is calling it out, uh, to be fair, they, they, they have done. But I, I think what Labour should do is rather rather than just call it out, put forward its own version of levelling up. Because the truth of the matter is, Labour's been uh, too lukewarm about devolution itself. I think it's the future. Everybody needs to live in a place that is empowered to make more change happen for itself. I think devolution builds a healthier way of doing politics. So I think it's time for Labour not just to criticise the government, but to set out a better version of levelling up. Well,
0: we're going to have a lot more on this later. But first, the government is finally doing something about the 1%. It's just a shame that it's a derisory 1% pay rise for healthcare workers. When a government promises on the side of a bus that it would deliver mass cash injections for the NHS and then doesn't, what do promises even mean anymore? We'll speak to Andy and maybe his dog, who's barking in the background, in more detail <laughs> about this and his work there <laughs> and the future of regional devolution. And in, in our extra bit for patrons, we'll be ganging up on soft Londoner Ian.
2: It's Jesus Christ!
0: Using our experience of <laughs> the country's finest regions, we'll try and persuade him why there's life outside the M25. This week, while the Treasury spends its cash creating a glossy brand image for Rishi Sunak, the fine print of the government's spending plans revealed a pay rise for health workers of a miserly 1%. As of today, Marcus Rashford hasn't yet made an intervention, but senior Tories are still expecting the government to pull another U turn on the strengths of public opinion. Ian, Notorious good faith actor Nadine Dorries says that in the NHS, a 1% rise is, quote, a lot more than it seems. What's her logic for that?
2: Her logic was that, you know, we're tightening our belts, So, no, you know, no one should be expecting any pay rises at all in the public sector. So this is really, you know, you can't, it doesn't seem to have gotten enough appreciation how fundamentally the narrative changed when Rishi Sunak delivered his budget last week. Because what he did was introduce the austerity narrative. That is what he did. You know, it started very cleverly with corporation tax saying, well, we're going to increase corporation tax and higher earners. In fact, lots of low earners would would go into a tax rate. But that got it sort of neutralized a lot of the attack that you typically get from the left, who seem to think that sort of austerity is just spending cuts. Austerity is not just spending cuts on benefits. Austerity is also when you try to rein in spending, put up taxes at a time of economic recession, which is exactly where we are right now. The classic thing mm. is you want to increase demand, not take it away. So her argument was basically if they're getting anything at all, that's a lot. However, even on its own terms, the argument doesn't work. Because in fact, what they have been given is a 0.5% pay cut. It is 1.5% is the expectation for, for inflation. So if you take that, you say it's a 1% rise, then I'm sorry, you can chip away at that 0.5%. So, in fact, it is a pay cut. We shouldn't even call it a sort of an insulting pay rise because that isn't what it is. In real terms, it is a pay cut.
0: And, and as you say, you know, good Keynesian economics would tell us that we need to uh, use stimulus uh, in a downturn. How does all of this compare with what's happening to health budgets in Europe?
2: Not well. I mean, Emmanuel Macron got himself into a terrible pickle with the nurses last year and responded by by chucking them an awful lot of money. I th- think it was eighty. It was a, it was a huge amount, and I can't remember the exact amount. In Scotland, uh, you saw Nicola Sturgeon saying, we'll give you a 1% um, pay rise preemptively while talks are going on. And we're going to give you this bonus of a few hundred quid. Um, And that's been the general approach. But also, by the way, this doesn't correspond to the long term trends with European health. I mean, you look across, if if you look at sort of health spending as a percentage of GDP, it's 12.1% in Switzerland. It's 11.7% in Germany. In Britain, it's 8.7%. Nurses, are nurses, on their average wages are paid less than they are in Spain, in the Netherlands, and Germany, in Belgium, in Ireland. I mean, you re- you go across, and we are typically a low spender on health. I've just realized as I'm saying this, that one of the people on this podcast was was actually the health secretary, wasn't he? <laughs> <Is that> <laughs>
3: who
2: <laughs> paid, who paid nurses properly. Uh, <laughs> that, that just clicked as I was coming out of my mouth. So, you know, this, this is part of a longer term trend. But at the moment, that the view in Europe is not to do this. And also, by the way, there are no other major countries that are deciding that now is the time to rein in spending. There is There are no world sort of economic problems. The, the IMF, they are not suggesting it. This isn't like the austerity period where people were starting to say that stuff. Nobody else is taking this approach at the moment because it makes no fucking sense.
0: British exceptionalism. Well, exactly, exactly. We'll be fine. Minnie, three quarters of NHS staff are women. Um, on top of the PPE shortage at the start of last year, it's also been reported that lots of it was designed for male bodies and to, to fit male faces. How on earth do these mistakes keep being made, even when you've got a profession like this where women just so outnumber men? Yeah, I mean, this
1: is just classic case of of everyday sexism. And I think there's really clear evidence that science and the way we use data can perpetuate sexism in society, because I guess at the end of the day, nothing really occurs in a vacuum. And the author, Caroline Criado Perez, has written... Um, in her book, amazing book, Invisible Women, all about how entrenched sexism in data puts women's lives at risk from the temperature of offices being too high because they were only tested on men or how seatbelts are less successful in saving women's lives because again, they're only tested on men. And I think in this instance, what it really highlights is how little credit and protection women working in healthcare are given. It's obviously one of those things where it's been viewed as males dominate the industry or or are in in higher up roles. And I think that's a real shame and something that needs to change
0: drastically. Now, applications to study nursing have apparently risen by 32% in the last year. Do you think that this miserly pay rise might mean some of those applications get withdrawn as students realise that their government just doesn't value this profession? Um, Ian's talked about how how nurses get paid more in other European countries. Is it going to also deter overseas applicants for nursing roles too?
1: Yeah, I think it's amazing that we've seen an increase in nursing applications. And I think it it speaks to how much the public recognise what an amazing force they are and want to be part of it. I imagine, if anything, that it's not the pay rise that will put students off, but the kind of tens of thousands of pounds of debt that that student nurses end up with, um, and the fact that that they're not paid while they're working on placements and stuff like that. The Royal College of Nurses says that one of the reasons most cited for leaving the nursing profession is pay. So what you you get is people applying with really goodwill, completing a training programme that's expensive, and then eventually feeling overworked, uh, unrecognised, unfairly compensated, uh, and pushed out and then the the cycle continues i think something that has to come out of this pandemic as a priority is is a long term nurse staffing plan and and as you mentioned that has to include a plan for overseas applicants who have their own unique experiences of the system you know overseas nurses they have their own visa route now where they're kind of told we want you to come we need you we'll clap for you we rely on you but then they're subject to extortionate immigration fees no recourse to public funds if they fall on hard times and it's made incredibly difficult for them to to settle here permanently and it's just really obvious that the whole system isn't working properly and we can't continue to use nurses like this I mean it's not really a debate is it their, their value is completely and utterly obvious and, and they should be compensated properly.
0: Now talking about things that get money test and trace costs have been pushed above 37 billion pounds it's been revealed and it's also been revealed that the check-in data from the app was quote barely used to actually contact trace. I mean, look, things are rarely as simple as, you know, state run thing, good, privatisation thing, bad. But how do you explain the vaccination rollout going so well by comparison to test and trace? Is this where I'm supposed to again thank Kate Winslet and the film Contagion
1: for for (laughs) sparing Matt Hancock into early action? But but I do think this has a lot to do with early planning and a clear idea of what the end goal would look like. You know, the vaccination programme It has not been free from handouts to Tory mates, but it was also largely guided by experts. Um, a lot of the World Health Organisation guidance was followed, and you had heavy input from the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. Plus, we actually already have in place a national public institution, which is, in this instance, free at the point of use for everyone and designed to deliver national programmes. You know, this is precisely what the nhs is for Mm. and imagine if we could what we could do with it if we were not like moving towards privatization you know it's not a common system across the world and i think when it comes to to test and trace you know we can't say that about test and trace it was a wholly new program for the uk something that hadn't been attempted before and and was obviously the most egregious example of, of cronyism but i do just also want to recognize that you know we are an extremely wealthy country with with every advantage. And rightly or wrongly, we have used that advantage to prioritise ourselves in the vaccination programme. And that has um, a lot to do with why we're more successful than other countries.
0: Andy, you have given the government some friendly advice to make the U-turn on nurses' pay right now. They haven't done so yet at the time of recording. We have more than 120,000 dead from COVID, many of them frontline workers themselves. Does nurses' pay have the potential to become a political albatross around their necks? You know, I'm thinking of things like Black Wednesday or indeed the Iraq War.
3: Yeah, I think it, I think it does. That's why I said that they'd be better off just you know, completely U-turning uh, straight away. It's tone deaf, isn't it, to not recognise what this means? I mean, Ian's right, it's a pay cut, if you think about it, in terms of rates of inflation. But but actually, we heard Simon Stevens this week, um, the head of NHS England, say that there's a 2% rise already baked in. So what are the government doing here? It's not just the, the individual impact, which is wrong. You've also got to look at it from health policy terms. The NHS is in the middle of a pandemic, and it's still got a mountain in front of it because that's all of the other health issues that have been put on hold while we've been fighting the pandemic are going to land at the door of the NHS uh, as this year unfolds. So staff have got a really tough two years ahead of them. And to demoralise them doesn't make sense from a health policy point of view, but it's just wrong on an individual level. And I don't think the public Uh, Support it, and on somewhat you were saying before about the chancellor having to sort of reset things a, a bit. But to say it's not affordable, well, I'm sorry, that doesn't really wash anymore, does it? You've just chosen not to afford it. It is affordable if you choose to make it your priority, and they should make it our priority nationally because we are all still, all of us, heavily dependent upon NHS nurses going above and beyond to protect the health of the nation through this really challenging period.
0: Do you think Labour should back strikes if the nurses do ballot to go ahead with those?
3: On this, yes. I think it's that fundamental. If you feel strongly, you've got to follow it through. The NHS staff should not be being treated in this way at this moment in time. It is wrong. It's straightforwardly wrong. It's wrong for the staff in human terms. It's wrong for us all in terms of what it might mean for the NHS. So I, I do think you have, to, you have to, to back them. Of course, nobody, nobody wants to see it come uh, to that. Of course, you would want to negotiate a solution here. That's why I was calling on the government to do the U-turn. Yeah. Um, but you cannot take away the right of staff to express how they how they feel, uh, because they can't be taken for granted. And this does seem to me to be an area that um, the government has got completely wrong. And uh, you know, it's it's difficult for Labour in the middle of this national crisis, isn't it? I think they have been on the horns of a dilemma trying to show support and not point score or, you know, make, make uh, sort of petty uh, you know, politicking sort of interventions. But at the same time, you know, where the government is out of line, call them out. They are out of line on this. Call them out is what I would say to my colleagues in the Parliamentary Party. And I think they are, because I think Keir Starmer, I didn't see Prime Minister's questions today, but I think he used all of his questions on this topic, rightly so.
0: Now, your successor as Health Secretary, Andrew Lansley, uh, notoriously made a series of reforms to the NHS that were roundly criticised and which this government is actually now rolling back. If you had your time again and you were Health Secretary now, what would you say needs to happen with the NHS at this moment in time?
3: Well, I, yeah, I was obviously Health Secretary. once well, now uh, 11 uh, years ago. I vehemently fought those Lansley reforms. They were, they were wrong because it was wrong to reorganise. A successful nhs at that time uh, but they they planted some problematic notions at the heart of the nhs which people have largely ignored for 10 years but they could have caused a lot of, of damage so to be fair to the government you know the white paper i think is is pretty promising actually um it's, it has a lot of echoes of my policy of health and social care integration of uh, the imitation
0: is uh <laughs> exactly
3: exactly um they won't admit it but i i see it um whole person care so what I tried to do as health secretary is not actually re- reform the NHS. I tried to reform social care. And actually, the, one of the ways you can best help the NHS is coming out of the pandemic to reform social care properly. And by that, I mean, put it on the same financial basis as the NHS, i.e. tax funded, where everybody contributes, but everybody is covered for their care needs. That, that is the reform that we're crying out to see, because if you do that, It means you will be able to reshape the way care is provided in people's homes and we will be able to provide much more preventative, good quality care in people's homes rather than the 15 minute visits. And that in turn prevents people failing at home and ending up spending a long time in in an acute hospital bed. So the reform of social care is actually critical to making sure the NHS is ready to deal with all of the challenges of the ageing society.
0: Andy, you've already uh, alienated our production team by pointing out that Everton have now scored more goals and won more games than Liverpool all <laughs> year so far. Isn't um, so that an
3: incredible start? Your listeners need to develop All your
0: answers is what I was going to say because they get the final edit. Um, <laughs> so, first up, let's go back to that moment when you found out on live TV that Manchester would be forced into Tier 3 lockdown with a financial package that was 43 million less than you were asking for. Tell us how that felt and what was going through your head.
3: So there was a long build-up to to that moment. If if I'm honest, it began with a meeting on, it was a Monday of a couple of weeks before, where a group of mayors were presented with the first plans for regional tiers. And we knew we were going to be in a high tier. And we didn't resist that because our case rates were high. But I was saying to the government, you're going to have to have a proper support regime for these regional tiers, and to be honest, at that point there wasn't even any support uh, going to be coming for the uh, regions going under tiers. And I was in touch with Matt Hancock that week, that week saying, "You know, are you making progress on support? Because you know we can't support this without without support." And eventually, I mean, I, I, then there was a Times headline that said pubs will shut across the north. I don't know if you remember remember that, and that yeah. caused a massive backlash then I went on question time in a bit of a bit of a mood saying look I'm not we're not just being treated this way if there's going to be restrictions we need support and then finally on the Friday um, after that the government said that they would have a 67% furlough
0: and and it had been 80% up to that point
3: yeah and bear in mind we were talking about people working in pubs bookmakers people driving taxis Low-paid people, it might be all right for people, you know, on perhaps our salaries to live on 67%, but if you work in a pub, it's not possible um, because your wages won't cover your rent and you will be in severe hardship. So it was a point of principle, and I made it clear to the government it was a point of principle, and I said, you know, pay a full furlough, have a full self-employment income support scheme, and then we will support it, and they just wouldn't, and they wouldn't move. And I I was, you know, things progressed. They still wouldn't move. We got to the morning of it. And I said, look, give me enough money so that I can top up the furlough. And that's it. That's fine. We will do do a deal. They wouldn't move. Prime Minister came on the phone. And I said to him, you know, do you realise we've been in effectively what are called tier two restrictions since July, which are, you know, those restrictions on gatherings in the home. And that has choked our footfall in our restaurants. And, you know, we've been damaged already. We've had no support. Can we have support? No. And that's how it unfolded. So there were those who kind of claimed I sort of manufactured that moment. Uh, honestly, nothing could be further from the truth, because I started out by saying to the government, you know, let's make these tiers work. And uh, and really, they wouldn't and didn't listen. And um, hence, we ended up in that position.
0: Um, and what do you think it says about the government's attitude to the north of England?
3: Well, they they think they can get away with things here that they wouldn't dare try in London because London went into Tier 2 later that very same week, if you look back, and immediately the issue of Tier 2 costs was on the table, immediately. And I tweeted that night, I "I hope they're going to backdate this money. And they had to. And I just, honestly, I I mean, I look back on it and and think, I don't regret any of it because the point of doing the job that I do is to, you know, I, I said when I left Westminster, I'm not coming in it in it actually to do the sort of point scoring thing. If the government do something right, I will say that and I'll praise them. If they do something wrong, I will call them out as loudly and as effectively as I can, and I've stuck by that. And I, I as a point of principle, they were wrong on this in terms of the way they were they were treating people. Yeah, in fact, they'd actually shut pubs in Bolton in the summer overnight without any compensation for the people or the businesses. And I said, well, we're not, they're not doing that again. So we kind of built to that moment, but I i, I mean, i mean, not meaning any offence in Ian's direction here, but would they have done what they did to us to London? And the answer is no, they wouldn't. And ultimately, if devolution to the English regions is to mean anything, mm. it does require people like me to be prepared to say, well, we're just not having that. And we're going to, you know, if you're not going to change, we're still going to call you out on it.
0: Well, let's talk about that, because it was obviously a Labour government that led on devolution and implemented more proportionate voting systems for European, Welsh, Scottish and Northern Irish elections in order to do that thing of putting power back into the hands of people locally that, that you spoke about at the top of the show. So is Labour doing enough to kind of own that, that proud legacy of constitutional reform? Because after all, it's, it's not just the red wall that Labour needs to win back. Of course, it needs to make big strides in Scotland and Wales, too.
3: I think there's been progress. We were forgotten Metro mayors in the early early days of coming into office. We never were invited to speak at Labour conference. We we had no role in the sort of electoral college when it comes to electing the leader. So we were kind of just brushed aside, really. And it's definitely got better since Kira's come in as leader. But I think you know Labour, I've always said this, is as London-centric as any of the other political parties. It's centralising sometimes in its mentality. It, it needs to, needs to change. Now, Keir definitely has set up a commission, um, you know, a, a constitutional commission, which is looking now seriously at change. And that's, that's really, really welcome. You know, I've, I've made this point, you know, if Westminster, if Labour's Westminster centric, it, it's, it's really, I think, setting itself up on, to to a slow death, because you can't, gamble every five years on winning a Westminster election and when you don't and sort of say oh well, we'll do it again in the next five years you have to build your rebuild through different structures don't you?
0: Yeah I mean exactly that and with impending boundary changes and a swing needed that's larger than that 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 New Labour achieved in 97 is it possible to beat the Conservatives without electoral reform?
3: Of course it's possible. And that's why I'm saying, you know, Labour needs to, you know, embrace devolution in England to build a base in the English cities, build a power base, bring through some Labour policies in those cities, and then set up a, a situation where it's gonna be more likely that they will win uh, a Westminster election. So to be honest, I'm encouraged. You know, there's been a real change in, in the last few few months. And I, I think it gets all of this. Um, and involves us in a way that we've not been involved for a long time. So it's much more, uh, much more positive. And you know, I, I think Labour's got to apply the same principle to Scotland. You know, I think in, in Scotland there's a form of top-down, sort of uh, you know, Hollywood-centric uh, politics. And I think the answer to a lot of the challenges of the 21st century is to empower people more at a at a city and a community level um, and build change from the bottom up. So I think you know, there's a rich agenda here. That labour really needs to really needs to grab hold of and um, and, and sort of put its stamp on and I, I get the feeling that that is now beginning to happen.
1: Andy, you know, we're talking about um, Labour winning winning the Red Wall back. And um, just on that topic, you know, in the US, Joe Biden is attempting to lead public opinion on immigration by tearing up a lot of what President Trump put in place. And do you think that Labour under Keir Starmer has what it takes to do the same here and make a positive case for immigration that's evolved past Blair government's approach?
3: Yeah, I I think so. I, I think so many. I mean, you know, obviously we've got to move beyond the very polarised uh, debates that we've seen during the, the Brexit era. And I think just, you know, in some ways get out of the we- the Whitehall mindset that you have to take these positions to please newspapers. You know, I was talking before, wasn't I, about you know the, the way in which Westminster politics can make politicians appear in a certain way that sometimes they're not. And I think that is sometimes, you know, the party's always positioning to sort of carry a line in a certain newspaper. And that's what often gets people into to trouble. Just deal with it in straightforward human terms. You know, this might be of interest to you because you mentioned before about people with no recourse to public funds. I'm quite clear that we will support people with no recourse to public funds into our homeless uh, programme a bed every night. And we will find a way of paying for that because it's the right thing to do. And uh, I have absolutely... You know, no qualms in saying you know we should campaign nationally against iniquitous policy of no recourse to public funds because how can a country like ours in law say that destitution is okay? It's never okay, no, ma- no matter who it is. It's just never okay. Um, so I just think just deal with it in that kind of way without trying to position and posture on it. Get the balance right in the immigration system. Just talk to what is mo- you know, fair and normal and what most people would relate to.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more on on the kind of no recourse to public funds aspect. And and Manchester obviously has a high proportion of migrants and and BME communities. What effects has the pandemic had on the high proportion of migrants and BME communities living in Greater Manchester, especially when you combine uh, the hostile environment, people being afraid to come forward for the vaccine and a lack of financial support from the government?
3: Well, I think if we go back to the summer of last year, you know, that was... A defining moment wasn't it when two pandemics came together basically the Covid-19 pandemic and the pandemic of racism that had been building for a decade or or so before it and um, I think in a city like ours you know it, it had a, a massive impact actually uh, on on people and I, I'm very fortunate Minnie, to be the mayor of a city region that has always had that belief in shared common humanity equality diversity really kind of hardwired in to the city. And, and the reason I say that with, with confidence is because, I don't know if people know this, but we have a statue of Abraham Lincoln in city centre Manchester, and people often say, well, why? What, what, what's that about? It's because it it was sent to the working men of Manchester after they refused to handle slave-picked cotton at the height of the American Civil War. And it's actually quite an inspiring tradition, isn't it, that you know, 100 and whatever, 70 years ago, whatever it was, the very, very kind of poor working men and women of Manchester were saying Black Lives Matter, you know. So there's nothing false about it when, you know, in this day and age, we uh, take a a clear stance on those those issues. And I think it has been clear that COVID-19 has impacted on uh, some communities more than others. Why? Because, let's say, take the Bangladeshi community, who I think have been most um, harmed, if you look at all of the, the, the harms that have been done, It's because of the nature of the work that people do. People are more likely to work in the most dangerous professions. Some of the people in our poorest communities, where where there is a a higher percentage of people from ethnic minority backgrounds, they have been out at work all the way through the pandemic. They often work in jobs where there is no support to self-isolate. So, you know, this is the effect, isn't it, of unconscious or structural bias and racism that, you know, people end up in 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 jobs that are the lowest paid and the and the least secure, and and sadly, the situation still exists in our city region that uh, more people from our Black and Asian communities are likely to be in that form of employment.
1: and on the topic of, of isolation, you know, you've warned that without more isolation support, the pandemic will spread again. Um, and Chris Whitty is now warning that all the modelling says there will be another surge. And, and do you think we're unlocking too fast?
3: No, I, I think it's I think it's broadly about right. And on this, I'm, you know, I said before, I will you know, praise the government where they're getting it right. I think they have learned the lessons of 2020. And this roadmap feels about right to me. But I think they should resist uh, you know, calls to accelerate it. I think they're, you know, they're proceeding in the right way at, at the moment. And they should follow follow the data. But you're Dead right to point to self isolation support. This is the irony, isn't it? We're spending 37 billion, as we were saying before in the podcast, on the test and trace system. That is wasted if you don't then support people to self isolate. Because what's the point in testing and finding a positive case and then tracing all the contacts? And then when you say to those people, particularly if they're in communities where people are in you know, zero hours jobs, oh, but there's no help for you to isolate. What's the point of doing all that testing and tracing? And this is the thing, isn't it? They've, they've been warned about this, including by SAGE, who last year said they needed to fix self-isolation support, and they haven't done it. And I think it's the single biggest hole in our national defences and the Achilles heel in the roadmap, because with new strains around, these new strains can quickly go through a kind of warehouse or a food processing uh, plant that will set us all back. It's, it's actually compounded by the fact that the health and safety executive have only ever classified COVID-19 as a significant workplace issue, not a serious workplace issue. I, I really cannot understand how, how that has lasted for a year, you know, where we've got people going into work who perhaps should be self-isolating, but then workplaces that aren't COVID secure themselves. Are we, are we surprised that some of our poorest communities have, have been sort of trapped with a, with a high case rate? We've got a
2: mayoral and local elections coming up in May. I mean, polls aren't fantastic for Labour. They're not disastrous, but they're not fantastic. What? How are you expecting that to shake out?
3: Well, it's going to be... Well, the first thing I would say about it is I'm actually a bit astounded that elections are going ahead in May. Mm. Because, on back just touching back on the previous um, conversation, we're still under quite significant restrictions at that point in time. So the question I would ask is, why do you think we're going ahead in May? Why are we not delaying to say July when we're through the roadmap? I'm going to give you my answer to my own question. And that is, I think, I can only conclude that the government are thinking that uh, going in May will reduce, will result sorry, in a lower turnout and that will be advantageous politically. I don't know whether that's right or not, but I, I, I'm struggling to see another reason as to why it's right to go ahead in May when we're still under restrictions, councils are under a lot of pressure, you know. Why not wait until July when it's just much safer for everybody? I honestly don't understand why we're going ahead. Are you going to be able to campaign? It's limited. Um, so, yes, in terms of um, doorstep deliveries. And I think there's now a sort of a, a guideline or a protocol about door knocking um, you know, in terms of the numbers of people that can be there. But it's all very limited, Ian. And, you know, will the public welcome it? God, I mean, that's, that's a pretty, do they welcome it at any time? But you know, now are they going to welcome it? So it's I just not going to be a normal campaign, is it? It's going to be um, a sort of much sort of muted uh, campaign. You know, these are significant elections, aren't they? They are big elections taking place across across the country. And, yeah, I think Labour can do, can do well in them. We've got you know, really strong kind of Labour candidates as mayors up and down the country, and we work as a real team. So I'm hopeful that we can do well in the North, we can take the first mayoral team in West Yorkshire, the first uh, woman metro mayor, hopefully the brilliant Tracy Brabin, um, West Midlands feels to me to be a really contestable sort of battle. I think Labour can have can have good elections, but I am worried about a low turnout and what that might do.
2: There's a lot of criticism of Starmer at the moment. I mean, predominantly from the left of the party, but a bit of wibbling as well from sort of the centre and people feeling the message isn't
3: getting across. I mean, what what do you say when people raise that stuff with you? If indeed they do, ah, uh, they they do, but I mean, I. I to say honestly look if it if it had been me if I'd have won in 2015 i think you know it's hard isn't it being leader of the opposition it's hard at any time really hard isn't it to sort of you know really you know build a sort of a, a kind of theme that you're kind of you know getting people to buy into so it's hard at any time but it's particularly difficult in a national crisis like this when it's not politics as as usual so mm-hmm. you know i think it's been a you know kind of get through in a, in a, in a balanced and measured way, respecting the fact that we are in a, in a, in a, a difficult national situation. So I think Keir has kind of got that balance right, but then when he has had the chance to question the government on their weaknesses, he's done it very effectively indeed. So yeah, I mean, I, I just think, you know, let's allow people some time here. Let's allow the, the, the shadow front bench to, you know, to, to get through this period and then, you know, really sort of, um, you know, kind of, uh, come back strong so yeah i think it's it's a case of you know bear bear with it i think you know labor's been through a lot of trauma and turmoil hasn't it over the last few <laughs> years in and that's that's an under political politician's <laughs> understatement there <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of lot of healing and uh, and stuff to be worked out there that, you know that needs to be done first before they can be a you know the, the opposition that we all want them to be
0: just to finish this segment, it's time for a quick fire questions round, Andy. Oh, Are you that ready? puts fear into
3: my heart. I have to <laughs> okay. say that. There we go.
0: <laughs> Rapid reaction. Right. Wayne Rooney at Everton or Wayne Rooney at Manchester United?
3: Oh, Everton. Absolutely. The young Wayne Rooney.
0: <laughs> Tony Wilson or Harold Wilson?
3: Oh, and that is a really good one. I, I, I met... One of them on many occasions, so it's going to have to be Tony Wilson because I, I love the man.
0: <laughs> Les Dawson or John Bishop? John Bishop, 100%. Joy Division or Echo and the Bunny Men?
3: Joy Division. Quite right.
0: Brilliant. I agree strongly with you, particularly on that last one. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated, where each week we pick a gold medalist and a wooden spoon recipient. And this week, it's our guest Andy Burnham who gets to have a go. Andy, tell us who's your overrated and underrated.
3: Ah, oh, this is a brilliant question, isn't it? Dangerous as well, of course, for uh, somebody in my position. But I'm going to give you a real, a real northern version of this, as you'd expect uh, from me. Doesn't it doesn't involve chips and gravy or anything like that, but not a million, not a million miles, uh, not a million miles away. It's not, uh, not food. It's sports instead. And definitely overrated is the sport of rugby union. I watch it. I try. I do put it on. I give it another go and they just can't kick one, and then they kick another thing. And I just say, well, where is the actual, you know, what's going on here? They're just trying to kick from miles away to, cut and, and Get these penalties that you have no idea why they've given a penalty for. You just kind of think, what you know, what what was the infringement there? And it's just a bit, honestly. I you know I don't I know it's a stereotypical northerner thing to say, but it is true. It is an overrated sport, uh, in my view, very seriously overrated. And then clearly, you'll know where I'm going with underrated. Uh, I'm going for the the the, the, the pace, the power. Uh, the passion of gladiatorial rugby league, which I think is the most underrated uh, sport in our country. I'm not just saying that because I'm biased as a former president of the Rugby Football League. But I am, I am biased. I am a professional Northerner. I'm all of those things: <laughs> chips and gravy for breakfast, all of that. But also, I love rugby league, the most underrated sport in the country. And uh, I hope that firmly answers your question. QED. Rugby Union. It should uh, it should just quietly move away to the sidelines and let rugby league uh, become the uh, the rugby dominant code around the world.
2: This has been extremely instructive for me because I had no idea there
3: were different kinds of rugby. <laughs> <laughs> it normally gets rugby league. It normally gets about the sum total of two lines in the London Evening Standard. in. Mm. so uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised. <laughs>
0: now we've reached the end of the show which means it's time for but your emails we read all your submissions or at least we do now that we've finished rewatching the whole of borgen this week rebecca warren in lockdown munich asks I read a scathing piece by James Ball and the New European on the pointlessness of legal challenges like the recent one by the Good Law Project, in which the judge found that the government had acted unlawfully in failing to publish PPE contracts in a timely fashion. What does the panel think about the usefulness or otherwise of such legal challenges? Is this one of the few ways in which ordinary people can hold government to account, or are they just a distraction which makes little impact outside the bubble? Who wants to take that one?
1: I can take that one. I have a lot of feelings about oh, that, that one <laughs> um, because uh, JCWI has historically carried out a lot of strategic litigation, and and we still do, and um, and it often holds the government to account in areas where there simply isn't public interest. You know, some of our best campaigning around the hostile environment has come from suing the Home Office, which I am a massive
0: fan. of. What are we doing today? Oh, I just sued the home office.
1: Yeah, it's so much fun, especially when they lose. But where I kind of fall on the issue is that you know litigation is really important, and it constitute it constitutes a key make of our democracy. You know, we as a public have every right to directly challenge the government through the courts, particularly where our elected officials are are failing to do so, and we have little recourse to force them into action. But increasingly the government is turning on so-called, you know, do-gooder lawyers and, and using that as a means to decrease accountability. So I think we have to be really aware of that context. Um, so a bit like James Ball, I, I kind of advocate like really thoughtful and strategic uses of litigation. But I think it's also really important to think about how you publicise that litigation, because from my perspective, not all of it needs to be public to achieve some of the same outcomes.
2: Andy, you've probably faced quite a few judicial reviews when you were sort of. Of, uh, uh, Secretary of State. I mean, is it does it does it actually is it something that ultimately does influence the way that you approach policy?
3: Yeah. Oh, absolutely, Ian. Yeah, you would often be warned about those risks in in making uh, ministerial decisions. And what what I think about this is, it feels to me double standards. I I saw Labour ministers hauled over the coals after decisions of this of this kind. Mm-hmm. I, I personally don't believe that Conservative ministers are held. To the to the same kind of standards of scrutiny that Labour ministers were, I just don't think they get the same pressure uh, from large parts of the media that we used to to get. Um, this sounds like yeah, it's it's sort of a whinge, this, but it is a whinge actually. I, I actual <laughs> colleagues really tormented by the press for and, and resigning, and it just doesn't. It just seems that if the Tories say, well, we're not resigning, that's it, go away. They just get out, no one in the press then howls at them about that. They just say, okay, well, yeah. and it. I just think it's right. I think it's fantastic that people are bringing these, you know, legal actions to try and hold the government to account. But where's the media in this? Where where are they in then following up on the back of some of these important legal, legal challenges? They did it to us. They definitely did it to us. They really, you know, would have come after Labour ministers. You could say rightly so. But I don't see the same ferocity in the media's response in dealing with Tory ministers as Labour ministers used to get.
2: That's good. Are you somehow suggesting that our ferocious, free-spirited, independent media are in fact uh, intending to prop up existing power structures in our
3: society? That's uh, I that. <laughs> who would have thought. But I'm not talking about the broadcast media. I'm talking about the print, the print media. Not all of the print media, by the way, but um, there are large parts of it, and and some of. The ones responsible, the, the broadcast media sometimes take their lead too often, I think, from the, the right-leaning papers as to what, what issues they, they follow up. But um, yeah, I'm getting this one off my chest, as you as you can hear. I I saw, I was David Blunkett's PPS. Uh, I kind of saw firsthand some of what he had to deal with at times. Maybe it's controversial, but I don't think Conservative Home Secretaries, Home Office Ministers get the same level of, of scrutiny that uh, we got when we were in government. I think Minnie's spot on about this,
2: really, which is it's, it's a weapon in the armory. And I, I think on sort of the liberal lefty side of things, we've been very good at using it and you have to use it and you can protect people's lives, especially when you look at areas like asylum that just aren't going to get press coverage. They just aren't having lots of sort of popular support to try and push for those changes. And it really, really helps. I do feel like over a period of about 30 years, many of us in liberal circles became too used to fighting our battles in the courts. And not doing enough of making the case, you know, for immigration, for a sort of compassionate system and and many, many areas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The same for sort of penal reform, criminal justice reform, that it wasn't around the water cooler, you know, and it wasn't in the pub. It very often wasn't in TV studios. So you'd have Farage being able to spout all of his nonsense and you weren't really getting a counter to it. But that's not to say that the, the, a judicial review approach isn't the right one. You, you do that, but at the same time, you can't allow yourself to be so completely seduced by it that you forget that you do still have to fight the battle for public opinion
3: at the same time. You've got to pick your issues, Ian, is what I would say, because often it's much better, obviously, to p- pursue something politically. But I, I um, uh, made my last speech in Parliament on the issue of contaminated blood, and I took a deliberate decision in making that speech to threaten to go to the police with evidence which I had of massive wrongdoing and cover-up with relation to people's medical records who were victims of the contaminated blood uh, saga. It had real echoes of Hillsborough, actually, in terms of the way, well, in this case, medical records were altered to make it look like the, the patients were the, to blame in the same way that police statements were amended to make sure to make uh, supports look, look like they were to blame. And sometimes on those issues, Whitehall really, really puts a lid on them honestly, and it did on contaminated blood, massively so. And I was working for years in Parliament, well, how do you get this lid off this situation? And it was only when, in my last speech, where I was cutting loose, and I kind of leaving the reservation, and I kind of, like, went for it, really, and said, um, you know, and and I had evidence, which I believe was of criminal wrongdoing. I had evidence of, uh, he was a senior civil servant, I won't name him, but he was a senior civil servant who'd had hepatitis C, um, caused by being a haemophiliac. And the medical records were amended routinely, and this only came out after his death, to suggest he was a, an alcoholic, and that's why his liver was was failing, to get away from the fact that he'd been wrongly given uh, contaminated blood. And I threatened to take that evidence to the police, and it was only then that the Whitehall mas- machine changed. And to be fair to her, and I do... I believe she deserves a little more credit than sometimes she gets. Theresa May had a strong sense on these kind of issues of right and wrong. And in the end, I got through to her on it as I got through to her, her on Hillsborough and she moved on it and she set up the contaminated blood inquiry. But sometimes it's the criminal justice route or the legal route that is needed to blow the lid off. And it's just a case of picking the issue, I guess.
0: Well, thank you very much to Rebecca for your question. And all that's left is for me to say thank you to our hosts, Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Ian. Thank you. And our guest, Andy Vernon.
3: Thank you. It's been great to be on.
0: And thanks to you all for listening. Don't forget that by supporting us on Patreon, you get access to the exclusive extra bit of the podcast. And this week, we're going to be trying to convince city slicker Ian Dunn that there's life outside the capital. <laughs> Stay tuned after the music, Demon is the Monster by Shop, And a thanks to our latest Patreon battle. Hello and thank you from me
1: to Matt Shakespeare, David Cutts, Michael Simmons and Mike Walker.
2: Hello and thank you from me to Susan McGann, Helena Thomas, Joe Luzzi, Peter Byrne and Ben Bryce.
0: And finally, thank you for your support to Susanna Galvin C. Sheerenberg, Owen Yonkers, Christopher, Paul Comis and I see what you've done here, the Burley Monster. Oh
3: God, What now? was presented by Naomi Smith with Ian Dunt and
2: Mini Rahman the producer was Andrew Harrison the assistant producers were Jacob
3: Archibald and Yelna Sofranievich an audio production was by me Alex Reese. art direction by Mark Taylor oh god what now is a Podmasters production
0: (laughs) Welcome back to the Oh God, What Now? Extra bit exclusively for Patreon supporters. We're back after a week's break with a quandary. If you remove Ian Dunt from within the confines of the M25 and place him somewhere far from his usual comic shops and coffee houses, is he still even Ian Dunn you know i think
2: we've we've ultimately been leading here for years haven't we that we've now <laughs> formalized a whole segment of the show that's dedicated basically to bullying me for my life choices and it's extraordinary extraordinary
0: now, look, this week the panel is going to attempt to convince you, Ian, that, that London isn't really all that.
2: Um, I grew up in
0: Northern Ireland. I then lived in Leeds for six years. My parents are North Yorkshire dwellers. So as much as I am notoriously the Pimlico out of Pimlico, I am all too happy to tell you about the lovely three-bedroom house with front and back garden that I was able to buy in Chapel Allerton in Leeds for £80,000. Imagine that. <laughs> I can tell you about the delights of a Belfast gravy half and half. No, you know, Uh, the purity and emptiness of the beaches of the North Antrim coast and the amazing live music nights in Derry. But Minnie, I'm going to come to you. How would you sell not London to Ian? I mean, yeah,
1: I mean, I, I do like London and I lived in London for a really long time, but London is just way too big (laughs) like I can so happily live without that 50 minute commute and like the effort it takes to get to the other side of London is the same effort it could take to to leave another city and get into some beautiful countryside but the thing that I love most about being outside of London is that the community feeling is totally different and and you do get this in pockets of London where people have put down long routes and have lived there for generations but that feeling is way more consistent across places like Birmingham you know everyone is much more friendly people have more time for each other and I think uh, London can feel quite lonely and transient and I, and I don't get that sense from other places um, so if you don't want to be lonely Ian you'll, you'll move outside of London mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: That was a taster of the extended edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now, every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously.
3: Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.